you know, if you are at, are at sanctions risk, you know, what what changes do you make to your sort of optimal portfolio allocation as a sovereign reserve manager? And, you, you know, it's a pretty complicated sort of mathematical model. But the bottom line upshot was like, it's it's plausible and prudent if you're facing these sort of set of risks to allocate, say, anywhere from 2 to 10% of your sovereign wealth um, reserves to Bitcoin. Which is, and it's just like, yeah, they're not going to go all in. But like, that is, that's like what the math tells you. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Welcome, and thank you for joining us here again. We have one hell of an episode in store for you today. Matthew Pines is the Director for Security Intelligence at the Krebs Stamos Group, where he works as a cybersecurity and geostrategic intelligence consultant. As a National Security Fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, he conducts research and analysis to help policymakers understand the implications of Bitcoin as an emerging technology. He holds a master's degree in philosophy and public policy from London School of Economics and political science and bachelor's degree in physics and philosophy from John Hopkins University. This episode is packed full of signal. Matt has such a depth and breadth of knowledge that we felt we could have talked to him for days. Alas, we only had him for an hour and a half, but trust me when I tell you this, we will have him on again. We start the conversation talking about the geopolitical tensions between China and the US, we touch a bit on Russia, and then we explore the intersection of these tectonic movements and the interplay Bitcoin will have. Matt has an interest in UAPs, so we dedicate the last 15 minutes or so to our future alien masters. There is an alien technology that we have in hand today. It's a technology that has been classified as munitions by the US government in the 90s. This secretive technology is used by the cold card Mark IV to protect your Bitcoin. If you are serious about placing your Bitcoin into the most secure setup possible, you need to acquire a cold card Mark IV. Now we cannot guarantee that the Mark IV will protect your Bitcoin from our future alien overlords. But we can tell you with confidence that short of an alien invasion, your Bitcoin is more secure on a cold card Mark IV than anywhere else on Earth. Use code BCB for 5% off the Mark IV. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Matthew, man, we're excited to have you on with us for a variety of reasons. Primarily the deep insight, you know, in your macroeconomic uh, view of the world, the interplay between great powers. But the big reason we're excited to have you on is I think that you might be the first spook that we've ever had on the show. Welcome. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I brought my own listening device. <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah. Uh, actually, well, you're, you were you were doing more government consulting. Now you're more in the private sector, right? So you're a little bit of a double agent now. Is that accurate? You know, uh, they're everywhere, right? There's uh, there's official cover and non-official cover in that world. <laughs> Josh and I like to pretend on this show and in this space, Matt, that we're not government employees. There's nothing to see here. Yeah, we just kind of shove that under the carpet. Don't really talk about it much. <laughs> we may be the spooks, folks. We, we would actually be phenomenal spooks, Josh. Ingratiate people as firefighters, a couple fun, lighthearted dudes, you know, a little, a little bit vulgar. 
I'm getting so suspicious of everything now that I actually think Dan is a spook, and I didn't know that. So, like, the two of us don't even know if the other one's a spook at this point. Yeah. I mean, I had occasion to work with some firefighters uh, over the years. I, I ran um, a program that did operational experimentation, um, and so some of the technology that we were doing assessments of uh, had, you know, applications for first responders, and so um, we brought in a number of uh, sort of firefighters or uh, search and rescue teams. So You guys just gave um, firefighters syphilis and see where it's bred? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is like heartbeat detection, right? Yeah. So you, if, if you want to see, you want to see like where a terrorist is behind a wall, that's also useful for someone trapped under rubble. So yeah. Dual, dual purpose. Josh is right though. If you introduce anything to a single firefighter, it will be at all three stations and in the entire department within like two days, particularly good gossip. If you yeah. tell a firefighter oh, yeah. any secret, you, it, I could, I could trust Josh more than anyone in the world. Somehow, even if Josh doesn't tell anyone, if I tell him a secret, it's going to end up everywhere tomorrow. It's, it's hard, man. It's hard to keep a secret in the firehouse. Yeah, Matt. Let's, let's. Uh, we'll get in. We'll get into the heavy stuff here. Mm-hmm. Who are you? And we want you to tell us something interesting about you that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. Briefly, who are you? Introduce yourself, and then give us a fun factoid about Matt. So yeah, Matthew. Uh, Matthew Pines. Uh, my current job is I'm the director for security intelligence at the Krebs Stamos Group, which is a, a geopolitical and cybersecurity risk advisory firm for multinationals. Um, spent about 12 years doing uh, consulting in the national security and homeland security space. Something interesting for me is uh, I uh, did physics and philosophy as an undergrad. I was a, I still am a huge physics and philosophy nerd. Uh, so just last night I did a, a long Twitter Spaces on. Uh, aliens and uh, advanced theoretical physics oh. and uh, protopanpsychism. So that may be a slight different topic than what we're going to focus on No, I don't today, think it will but... be. Dan, I think we're going to have to divert here very sharply and yeah. go straight into those topics. <laughs> Every minute with you is yeah. precious, but we may have to waste 10 on aliens, Josh, at the end. We'll try to For keep sure. an eye on it. No, that, that's yeah, a topic certainly. I can't keep my hands off of ever. It's so interesting. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Um, Tell us a little bit about what it means to be a national security fellow. I know um, Jason Lowry is yourself. Uh, tell us a little bit about like what the initiation ritual is like. What kind of hazing is involved? Yeah, yeah. They send you off uh, to, uh, to 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 boot camp and they you know teach you how to you know pretend to be a bitcoiner to to do the infiltration. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So uh, I've uh, I've been uh, affiliated with the Bitcoin Policy Institute, uh, which is a think tank that got started by. Um, uh, some two smart kids. <laughs> I should call them kids because they're like 23, but they're like uh, insanely productive um, and, and ambitious. Uh, Graham McCarthy and David Zell, who approached me about a year ago when they were um, standing up this this you know, think tank to focus on Bitcoin specifically. And I had like 200 Twitter followers and just writing random thoughts about Bitcoin and national security and geopolitics. They're like, hey, can you write like a white paper for us? Um, you know, thinking through these questions um, with some more rigor uh, and long form and do it in a way that... Um, you know, appeals to kind of the traditional audience inside DC that, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily follow like Bitcoin Twitter or Bitcoin blogs or Bitcoin podcasts um, and responds to like serious, thoughtful, long form research kind of white papers. Um, and I spent a lot of career writing that type of stuff <laughs> uh, in lots of other domains. Um, and so I thought, you know, this is an interesting place to put down some ideas in, in one spot. So I wrote that white paper. It was kind of one of our first products that came out of the think tank. Um, and sort of been more engaged publicly in sort of the Bitcoin thought space and policy stuff for the past year. It's kind of like a, a side hobby that's interested in, uh, you know, I have an intellectual and policy interest in Bitcoin. And um, yeah, so it's been a, it's been a nice uh, sort of uh, sort of interesting uh, excursion the past year getting involved in this sort of stuff. Really generic question here, uh, but I'm genuinely curious because, you know, we've only, we've been in this space for 
five years or whatever, and it feels like the needle's moving, but what percentage of people in the circles that you run in, both you know, politically, national security-wise, and now more in the private sector, the people you rub shoulders with, let's say today in 2023, mm-hmm. what percentage of those individuals are treating Bitcoin with any degree of intellectual seriousness, if you were to assign a number to it? And, and then how has that trend changed throughout your professional career, or, or I guess specifically since you started deep diving on Bitcoin? It's hard to put a precise number. I haven't done these official surveys, um, but I'd say it's gone from like, like really rare to like not an uncommon thing um, would be kind of like the qualitative assessment. I think the that tracks with kind of the major movements you've seen in like the official policy space, mm-hmm. right? Um, some of the efforts at sort of various like legislative proposals, um, in, in particular on the executive side, the executive order on digital assets, you know, that was many months in the works and you know, that, that is the result of many people inside the, the government, particularly the executive branch, um, taking this very seriously. And when they do that, they, they convene, you know, task force and working groups. They bring in outside experts. They have, you know, mold, multiple drafts and sort of committee uh, reviews of these executive orders. And so it's a very serious thing when, when that happens. Um, and so I think that is a marked uh, trend uh, to sort of divergence uh, just in the past, say, 18, 24 months. Um, I think I think that's that's probably going to continue. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's on the uptake, but by no means is it, you know, uh, like in everyone's, you know, uh, sort of top of the agenda, right? I mean, there's certain domains where it makes um, more direct impact on sort of policy remit and different sort of uh, you know, bureaucratic authorities that, that have an interest in it. Um, and if you don't have an interest in it in the government, right, like it's like not my job and not my problem kind of idea, right? Like, so unless if someone makes it your problem or makes it an issue you have to take seriously, you know, you just got to sort of pay attention to it as, as you pay attention to anything else that sort of flits across the screen. Yeah. It's probably the kind of thing that's crossing their desk a little bit more than it was three or four years ago. And and I agree, it, it probably will more in the future. But I, I do think when you when you spend an exorbitant amount of time on Bitcoin Twitter and all you do is listen to Bitcoin podcasts, which by the way, we don't recommend. Expand your horizons. If your entire podcast lineup is Bitcoin podcasts, stop listening to us and go and hail some different information. But if you live in that bubble, you have this kind of grandiose, uh, hubristic, overinflated view of how significant Bitcoin is. It's maybe the most marvelous thing I've ever studied in my life, but it's still small. It's new. It's got a lot of speculative components, and the average senator isn't preoccupied with this unless it it's thrust in front of their face, or they are obsessed with the Texas energy markets or something. I want to I want to spin this into Ray Dalio a little bit. The Changing World Order has been a book that's had a huge influence on me, and I think Dan as well. I heard when you were talking to McCormick, we talked. You guys talked a little bit about Dalio, so curious about a couple of things with him. Um, in the in the book Changing World Order, he basically lays out this thesis for over the last 500 years, these empires rise and fall over periods of time, and there's a pretty common theme between each one of them. They become the hegemon. They have their currency being the you know the currency of the world. They basically, I mean the the basic idea is they get fat, dumb, and happy, and then they overindulge, and then they you know are taken over by another empire. And I think a lot of people are kind of concerned about how that theme is playing out in the modern day between America. And I mean, the most obvious one is China on the other side, a couple of things about China and Ray Dalio, how compromised do you think Ray is in his perspective uh, about China? I mean, having, knowing that he manages money for, I'm not exactly sure what entity from China or some entities from China, 
Just uh, some mm-hmm. comment about how he may be leveraged by that. Yeah, so those are two different questions. I'll take the latter one. I don't think he's like personally compromised as if like, you know, like the espionage services of China have like blackmailed him into saying, you know, positive things about China. I don't think it's like that. Um, I think it's more in keeping with uh, a trend and a, a theme that you've seen across sort of wide swaths of uh, corporate America, in particular Wall Street in the past 20 years of kind of more like soft elite capture where there's a certain framing of the relationship between U.S., China, especially an economic and financial relationship that um, has been, you know, designed to uh, enable more capital to flow from the West into China um, and to ensure that the, you know, the, the, the folks that are steering those flows of capital, you know, feel it's a safe place to put money. Right. So like that is uh, that is a clear um you know, rationale, it's, it, the way that China has adopted this as a strategy, um, uh, you know, is, has been documented by, by a number of uh, researchers, in particular one that I would point folks to named Alex Joski, who's written a book called Spies and Lies. And he really does a deep dive on the Ministry of State Security, which is their equivalent uh, sort of to the CIA, uh, although it has a domestic a security function as well as an overseas uh, intelligence uh, function. Um, and the MSS really started in the 80s, and we'll give the whole, you know, deep dive into the book. But this uh, framing of China as being um, uh, sort of opening up and will sort of liberalize with, uh, with you know, liberal and economic development uh, and that, you know, by getting rich will essentially more accommodate to the Western system and, you know, Western capital has an obligation to sort of help uh, China integrate into the existing um, global order. And, you know, this was like the line, basically, right? Yeah. China's uh, getting rich is good for the U.S., is good for the world. And that was essentially a, that was a specific targeted psychological operation. Like that, that was a framing. They used front groups to try to manipulate that, you know, uh, you know intensive, um, uh, you know, engagement with uh, various elites to make them think, right, this is a good thing. And, you know, when your salary depends on believing certain things, it's hard to, you know, convince someone otherwise, right? Yes. Uh, I think it's up to Sinclair Club. Yep. So I don't think it's a function of like, you know, explicit corruption or recruitment or sort of an espionage relationship. I think it's just um, buying into a convenient narrative frame uh, that, you know, makes, that justifies a lot of other things that happen to make you a lot of money, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, and and I think, you know, in particular, right, and I don't want to pick too much on, 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 on Dalio. I don't think he's like different than a lot of other, you know, folks that have, you know, done this. Um, but Bridgewater doesn't, you know, manage the money. I think it's through SAFE, which is a, uh, essentially uh, like state asset. Um, uh, sort of management uh, for the People's Bank of China. Um, so several billion dollars. Um, so yeah, I mean, but there's a lot of Western capital that's invested in China. Uh, it doesn't mean ipso facto, like they're corrupted. It just means, right. you know, have a financial relationship there that um, they would want to burn. Um, but back to your like larger question, which is like his thesis, right? So like separate the man from his ideas. I think he does have some good ideas. I do read those books. I think they're quite incisive um, and really useful as a as an analytical reference point. Um, I, I take issue. So one, I really love his historical work. I, you know, I, I applaud him and his research team for really digging through the data and putting these trend lines together. It really is useful. Um, and I, you know, commend that sort of work. Uh, it's very helpful to me to, you know, inform, you know, my understanding. I, th- I think that's a different analytic um, tool than like a projection forward, right? A way to forecast the developments where we are today. He's um, like a doctor, right? He's looking at some sort of like does a blood test, take some, you know, sort of uh, physiological measurements and tries to, you know, assess your health. Right. And he's got some benchmarks that say for someone your age, this is where you are. Right. 
it doesn't tell you you're going to have a heart attack in six months. It just means, you know, you should hit the gym, right? I think that's how I sort of look at those indicators is they're not, you know, these things are not deterministic systems, right? History tells you, like, not nothing's ever baked in, right, fully. Right. Uh, these are complex, irreducibly, uh, almost impossibly complex systems. Amen. Yeah, and, and history changes, like, a lot, right? Like, just because something happened in the 1600s with a certain cycle doesn't mean that, like, the 21st century is going to evolve the same way. Societies are very different. Economies are very different. Technologies are very different. Um, so the way I try to look at it is, I know he sort of aggregates at the state level and really looks at like critical kind of a you know quasi-imperial uh, state systems, you know, analogizing that to the pre- to, to the to the current day, looking at sort of the the typical rise and fall, right? And I think that 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 does gesture at um, a theme that I agree with. But my sort of diagnosis is, I'd say, a little bit more tactical. So I think in terms of uh, something more like um, like Fukuyama's model of institutions itself, and the state is a is a cluster of institutions, right? The state is a is essentially a meta institution that evolves over time and takes different forms by by the degree to which it can organize, develop, and mature different sort of institutional structures as part of one larger institution. So you think of like the monetary system as it, as an institution itself. You could think of like you know academia as an institution. You can think of um, uh, the political system and political uh, like elections as an institution, right? So these are all institutions. You package them all up, then they create what you call like a state system, right? right? Um, and each of those institutions is very complex. And I think, you know, in terms of Fukuyama's model, like institutional birth, sort of optimization, uh, uh, sort of drift and decay. And so you sort of still get this kind of cyclical pattern, but I see it a lot more complex because each of those different institutions in a, in a state could be at different stages of that kind of you know, birth, decay, drift uh, stage. And what you see at the state level is sort of the, is like the net result, right? And that's why if you like, just look at the macro kind of, is the state, like which part of the curve is it on, is not as helpful. It's like, you know, just looking at one measure of your body, of like your physiological and saying, okay, right. like how close are you were to a heart attack? Um, so yeah, I try to, that's why I like, think it's like the details sort of matter. And then thinking through what are the sort of specific institutions that that we confront now, like in our present moment, and try to assess like where are they, right? How close are they in this sort of domain? Um, like the last point I'll say is, you know, the institutions, and this is where I sort of come closer to to, to Dali in a certain sense is like we built a certain institutional framework post World War II that was successful at winning World War II. We had to construct these massive vertically integrated bureaucratic control structures to marshal and coordinate the resources of the entire continent to fight and win World War II. And that was like the test of who could build these centralized institutions more effectively and then wield them, you know, on a global scale to fight this decisive conflict for global power. And that was the United States. And we had a lot of inherent geographic advantages, but we only um, instrumentalized those geographic and resource advantages through constructing and um, operationalizing certain institutional frameworks, right? Like the Defense Department and, you know, bureaucratic structures that sort of emerged out of World War II, they really locked in after World War II. And then we sort of expanded... And that was like the halcyon days of the sort of of the centralized state, essentially in the 50s and 60s, presiding over this global system. Um, and there's like sub questions you could delve into, like the monetary dynamics of you know how that particular institution evolved, the military dynamics, the political dynamics, et cetera. But like the long story is that like we're still kind of um, you know we're still using those same institutional structures, right? These vertically integrated departments mm-hmm. and agencies. And and I have sort of an analogy to like in software. Um, there's a sort of, uh, something called, um, uh, Boeing's law, which is like, it's like software rot. So when you first write a software program, it's usually simple and lean and it's like designed to like give you the output that you want. 
And then over time, as you try to adapt or improve the software, you have to add pieces. You try to cha make changes. And those usually introduce um, like entropy. Those introduce, you know, additional complexity. And complexity over time, you know, creates the, the sort of chances of error. And there's like a known curve in software development that like you get to a point where like it just it's just like impossible to fix the software, right? There's so there's so many like layers of routines and subroutines that have been added that like no one knows and no one has the ability to like go into this like thicket of naughty code and like fix it. And you have to just like start over, right? Um, I think it's somewhat of an analogy to like institutional systems that generate rules mm, that, makes a that are usually simple and everyone has kind of a clear understanding of the purpose institution and there's a clear sort of demarcation of its authorities and its and its purposes. And then over time, they just get more complicated um, and no one really understands. No one can really dig in and like do a do a complete like refresh, right? Um, and that's a risk because ultimately, you know, there's always going to be the growing lag between the capabilities and the capacities of those institutions and like the world's external environment that they have to interact with. Yeah. Let's create more lag and more inefficiency. And that's, I think, what you kind of see in different aspects of our current institutional arrangement is a lag and inefficiency between the structure of institutions that are no longer optimized for a changing world in lots of ways. That's kind of abstract, but I think you can sort of take that framework and then apply it to something like the monetary system as a particular institution. When you put that on top of the technological innovation that we see today, like not only has that traditionally happened throughout human history, but now we have this, you know, hockey stick exponential curve of innovation, which is also adding to the entropy that these these uh, institutions totally. are feeling. And that that is just a, a dynamic that has probably never happened in history before, which is, again, why you can't go and just predict like, oh, well, you know, the Dutch gave way to the English and. But that's an entirely different kind of atmosphere that happened four, you know, three or 400 years ago. Totally. Well said, Josh. And that's one thing we appreciate about, it, about your work, Matt, is you, you do, you're careful to embrace that complexity and highlight that nuance. One thing we've talked about for two years on this show is simple is comfortable for most of our species, right? If, so if we look into the future, projecting what's going to happen next... A, a deterministic sort of scripted idea of what's going to happen next makes you, makes you feel all warm and fuzzy, even if it's it sounds kind of crazy. If you know what's coming, right? The scary movie's less scary, but that's mm -hmm. just not that's just not how the world works. Like as we unpack things like the geopolitical order, like what do those words even mean? Those systems are so complex that no matter how intelligent and well researched you are, yeah, there's no possible way you're going to have a grasp of this. The other the other thing I wanted to double back to. To, to and we are huge Dalio fans. Uh, we are all captured in some way, shape, or form. So the best you can do is try to figure out how you're captured and factor that in to your analysis of how you view the world and the lens you're looking through. One question I had about China, just to, to maybe drill down on some more specifics, <laughs> the way I kind of trend China, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of have a post-Mao China that's, you, you could call it weak, then they globally integrate. That leads to really significant growth. And now it seems like we're looking at a China that's that's closing off a little bit. How do you see this impacting their, their power in the world and their trajectory moving forward? Do you think it's going to degrade that? I hear so many different perspectives on this from they are going to be the world power in 2030 to they're spiraling out of control and they're going to be a nothing burger. What's your opinion on their their history and then how that factors into the present? 
Yeah, that is, I think, probably the most important question this decade, because I think the how that how that uh, unfolds, I think, will determine whether the 2020s are, you know, is like a more messy extension of the status quo or whether we confront a much more abrupt um, crisis uh, or divergence from our expectations. And so I don't have like a high confidence view too much, but I do have a low confidence in like both ends of those different theses. So like I'm not in the Peter Zahan, China's going to collapse camp. I think that's uh, quite an exaggeration, hyperbolic. But I'm also not in the China is this inevitable juggernaut who's going to, you know, re-architect the Eurasian um, system to sort of squeeze off the squeeze out the dollar system and, you know, uh, jump ahead in terms of critical next generation technologies and replace us as a global hegemon. That that is also, I think, very unlikely scenario. Um, but that leaves a lot in the middle that are also kind of somewhat disconcerting scenarios that I think we need to sort of um, as a nation, as, as a global system, think through. Um because even if you don't get to any of those, you know, extreme scenarios, there's still a lot of, I think, messy dynamics that you could that you could see. And so my baseline is that China is a global power, right? I think that is like obvious, right? They're just a large population, a large uh, economy, and they have, you know, instruments of hard national power that you can't just like wish away, right? Like their military modernization is unprecedented in like human history, right? The the the, the United States has never faced a peer competitor that that has um, improved. The relative gap between military capabilities as much as China has, and so that that should generate anxiety, right, from a national perspective, just by itself, right? Just okay, like like what was just like a local regional military that you know we could go in there with our precision strike and and uh, teach a lesson to in a weekend is now a serious threat to um you know and maybe a coin flip in a in a in a, in a, in a heads up competition uh, in the South China Sea or the Taiwan Strait. So that is a like just material facts on the ground change how you think about the strategic positioning. Um, but going forward, it's not all military, right? Going forward, it's a lot of other dynamics that come into play. Uh, I think at, at a broad strokes, I'm closer to uh, kind of a thesis of um, a book called called The Danger Zone um, by uh, by Hal Brands and I think Michael Michael Beckley. Um, and you know, I, I again, there's like always everyone, everyone uh, in the analytic China community, everyone has a take, and so I'm not like in the business of just giving takes. But I'm trying to like bound my bound my understanding of these different scenarios, sure. and this is a plausible scenario that I think um, gets at both of those kind of aspects of of what we think about China. One is they are confronting some challenges, right? They have you know like a single strongman leader who maybe doesn't respond you know very well to information, and so may make rash decisions that are not that efficient or maybe not all that um, uh, strategically minded. Uh, they have demographic issues. Has been sort of in the news quite a bit, right? Everyone understands they're sort of facing this demographic cliff in the near future. Um, that's gonna, you know, hurt their overall economic uh, sort of economic arrangement. They have a, like a really sort of pathological political economy for how they've bootstrapped themselves out of like you know subsistence for farming poverty to like uh, sort of middle like middle income uh, industrial power, but getting that to where you can stimulate household uh, consumption and you know start to sort of take some of the power away from the, uh, you know, Beijing directed, you know, SOEs and a sort of uh, infrastructure investment heavy economic model is a big challenge. Right. And that's kind of what they would need to do to really turn themselves, you know, into a more um, uh, or a less dependent uh, uh, sort of a piece of the global sort of economic uh, uh, trade system where they have to just run these surpluses, have to run this uh, sort of um, mercantilist uh, economic and, and monetary policy. So they, it's not like they're just like, you know, 
uh, juggernaut, all you know, kind of uh, ready to take the mantle of global uh, leadership. They're also have geographic disadvantages. Like United States is blessed by geography, two open oceans, and peaceful neighbors. Yes. China has fourteen um, borders and is hemmed in on the first island chain and is reliant a lot on you know imports of food and energy. So these are all like um, things that if you're sitting in Zhangnahai and you're doing the strategic calculation, like there's a bunch of things that you have to balance and it's a risk weighted decision. Um, the thing that really keeps you up at night though, is that they're looking for the, the CCP really wants to achieve certain strategic objectives. Um, and they would rather not fight a war to have to choose those, uh, objectives as anyone would, but I don't think they've taken it off the table by any means. Um, and even if there's a small probability of a, of a war, a war between great powers is never something to, um, dismiss. <laughs> like this is, we, we think that's in, 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 the, in the history books, but, uh, you know, things have a way of surprising you. I think because of the consequences of that scenario are so uh, catastrophic, like, I think you need to take it seriously. Um, yeah. And there's a concern, you kind of intersection of different trend lines, right? If, you, if you're worried about, like, this acute crisis scenario, say, a Taiwan-style um, uh, engagement, invasion, blockade, quarantine, some variation on that theme, you think, well, what would be the triggering kind of decision calculus for for Beijing, it's it's not going to be when they feel like supremely confident about the inevitable future destiny of the Chinese power. It's going to be when they feel an acute insecurity that the window for achieving these grand national objectives uh, is closing, and and they're going to be doing this calculation between what they feel is you know their um their just hard military capacity to uh, effectively accomplish that kind of tactical um uh you know military objective, you know mo- modernizing the PLA, improving um you know, the, like their exercises on how to conduct this type of amphibious operation, um, increasing the, their ability to, you know, deter us uh, by, you know, uh, holding a lot of our, uh, you know, uh, pristine assets at at exceptional uh, uh, hazard. But before, like a U.S. counter-China coalition can come into place where we can really bring Japan and South Korea and AUKUS and maybe even the Philippines on board in like a quasi sort of um, sort of entente uh, and and invest in like crash military mobilization and build up uh, Taiwan's sort of asymmetric defense capabilities to decrease the probability of that invasion being successful. And so these are different trend lines. And this is where I think the calculations start to be disconcerting, you know, over the course of this decade. And everyone has like trying to make up a number. And there's like a famous thing called like the Davidson window of 2025, which wasn't really based on any like intelligence. It was just kind of like um, a swag. Um, but, but it points to kind of a, a growing anxiety in Western capitals that uh, the, the trend line uh, between the U.S.-China relationship is, is not good. Uh, and, you know, even if you take Taiwan's scenario off the table, which I don't think you, you should, um, like there's lots of other aspects of the relationship that seem to be getting worse and worse. And this, I think, you know, is part of, you know, what now is sort of going under different names, what it's called, you know, the new Cold War, decoupling you know, this sort of idea, and this is a lot of what, you know, I I spend time in in my professional context is the last 20 years, really, ever since China came into the WTO, um, sort of like this sort of hyper, uh, sort of turbocharged global era of globalization premised on China entering, um, you know, both like the global like supply chain, right? Creating like factories that just produced Western goods, but has sort of started to climb the value chain. And, you know, many multinationals have poured trillions of dollars into China you know, premised on this idea of globalization, like one seamless integrated uh, global economic and trade system. And like, you know, a person working for you that's in Shanghai and a person working for you in Sacramento is just employees, their laptops are just the same laptops, et cetera. And there's a recognition now, you know, different companies are, are sort of 
either in or outside that sort of um, bullseye uh, of sort of risk differently. But there's a sense that this is a different environment um, and it's not going to get any better. And there's a, uh, a a slow recalibration of an approach to that 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 vision of globalization, um, where companies have to posture for a different security environment, both on a technical basis, but also on kind of a policy basis. And that's that's kind of baked in. Like that's going to happen. That's going to get worse and worse. Um, you might see a cyclical uptrend this year for other reasons. Um, but yeah, the, the the sort of general deterioration of the U.S.-China bilateral relationship this decade um, is, I think, the key the key variable. There's so much, <laughs> there's so much in what you just said that I want to pick at. I do. I want to just ask you this kind of, maybe this is an apples to oranges comparison, but Japan, this yeah. is going way back now. Like in the 1850s or so, they were a backwater. They were kind of isolated from the world. They technology hadn't really, they had no gunpowder. They had no, you know, cannons. They had none of these things. They basically learned from the English and very quickly um, got themselves on board to the modern world from the 1850s onward. And then in World War II, there was a lot of detrimental attitude towards them. Like, oh, they're just copycats. They can't actually produce a lot of these things. And then, then we saw Japanese zeros and we were like, holy shit, these guys actually produced an airplane independent of us that is competitive. And what I'm getting at though is um, back in the 80s and into the 90s, people, at least this is the impression I had. I was way too young back then to actually know what the real impression was, but they were like, holy shit, Japan is going to overtake us. Like they are a technological juggernaut at this point. And then they've, since then they've been mired in this financial repression and kind of just, I mean, they're certainly not sloths, but they just have been in a position of kind of going nowhere, treading water. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's an analog there for China where they've kind of caught up to the modern world? Um, certainly not saying that they're not capable of any innovation mm -hmm. themselves. I think they certainly are, but I think there's a lot of people that think they're just copycats how do you see that analog? Is that something that you think is relevant or is that a is that just a totally apples to oranges comparison? No, I think it is a is a good we don't have too many like in social science, right? Like you don't have too many samples, right? And every sample is somewhat historically contingent and you try to draw what analogies you can. I think that's the closest analogy, at least in recent history, is, you know, a rising you know, Asian power that, um, you know, like we were worried about taking over and then had their major debt bubble burst and then ended up being, you know, subsumed into the global order. Like the two pieces I would sort of uh, caution drawing too much from that particular example is one, like Japan still is an extremely powerful and influential country that punches way above its weight, right? In terms of global technology and, and, and you know, the economic system. Uh, like if, if China just like tapped out at where Japan is, it'd be four times the size what it is now, right? So like, like even if, China does hit this sort of air pocket bubble, debt deflationary, you know, um, demographic decline, right? Like if it gets to, if it sort of at least can sustain this kind of upper middle income, you know, it still is a force to be reckoned with, right? It's not going away. Um, now that may like pop the balloon of its like extreme ambitions, right? Like becoming like a peer power to the United States and bifurcating the global system in sort of certain visions of the geopolitical order. But like that, it's just taking that doesn't uh, mean that you should be sanguine um, uh, on their on their, you know, on their strategic challenge to the United States. Um, and the other key is that Japan was sort of already under kind of the U.S. thumb when that happened. Right. You could argue that like we kind of did that. Right. We kind of popped their bubble like the princes of the end idea. Um, and we had military bases in Japan like they were essentially um, at various stages like a vassal state. Right. Um and, and China's clearly not that, right? right. Um, so 
And so, yeah, I think that's where I, I don't try to go too far with the with the analogy. Um, but it is still an open question, which is like what obviously is driving a lot of the policy actions in the in the in the United States right now, which is we're trying to slow China down as much as possible. Like we sort of went from this regime of strategic competition where we sort of you know, belatedly recognize that they are, you know, have larger ambitions than just to like become our manufacturing outsourcing center. Right. Um, and we've tried to like, OK, like how do we compete? How do we, uh, you know, uh, rebalance the relationship here? And that was sort of the, the Trump trade war. Right. Kind of version one. Um, which has sort of continued even to the Biden administration. I think we're shifting from like strategic competition to like strategic rivalry and maybe even to like strategic like enmity. And the difference is like one is you try to race fast the other guy and the other is you try to basically like hit the other guy as long as it doesn't hurt you. The other guy is like, I'm willing to take a hit myself as long as it hurts you more. Right. And that's kind of like how these sort of like bad dynamics play out. Like you see it's like at a personal level, right? Sometimes you get into a, a grudge match with someone and you're, really, you're willing to take the pain as long as the other guy gets hurt worse. So it's like a net loss. Uh, we're not there across all domains, but like the trajectory of kind of, you know, basically economic war, right? So like export controls to really try to like, like kick the legs out from their domestic semiconductor industry to like block them from having access as much as possible to, you know, advanced, um, advanced node computing and kind of what we see is like, or what they see is like the commanding heights of the, of sort of the, uh, the, the fifth industrial revolution, which is premised on essentially, you know, next generation computing, AI, potentially quantum computing, but then a whole host of other kind of key technologies that they've laid out kind of like a shopping list for. Like they're aggressive in trying to really uh, climb the value chains and try to um, take ownership of some critical advanced technologies that they see as uh, really the key to to being an industrial and technological power and therefore a global power in the next several decades. And that's an open question. And that is that is where we are right now is is the United States is really you know, waking up to this and is is trying to you know put in place policies and re- and reorient the sort of um, the national security and the economic apparatus to sort of uh, you know uh, prosecute this competition. And honestly, like bureaucratically, we haven't been structured for this, right? We just created this new specific subcommittee, uh, sorry, select committee in Congress that's just focused on China competition. Um, uh, and we're you know trying to you know take what were like very siloed domains of policy, like economic policy and trade policy and monetary policy and defense policy and, you know, diplomacy. And, and like, if you go back to like the 19th century or even like, you know, like the British approach, this is like, there was recognition that all these different domains of statecraft have to be integrated if you're going to fight great power competition. Um, and we have really been sort of kind of lazy a bit, right? Like the, it was a, you know, the Pax Americana and each of these bureaucracies kind of just do its own thing to a certain extent and then come to the National Security Council every once in a while and, you know, f- fight over a memo. Um, so that is, a, and that's going to be a new regime, I think. Uh, now, how China, whether China can, can, can evade those is an open question. I see good analysts just to take the chips uh, example. Wait, before before you do that, can you explain the chips example real quick before you go down that? Just just spark notes, because yeah. I think it's one of the best overt examples of of tensions and kind of trying to hamper uh, <laughs> Chinese progression. Just real, really quick, if for someone that's not aware. Yes, yeah, certainly. Sorry, I uh, could go I could go quite, quite jargony and technocratic here. Um, yeah, I mean, so um, China has a both key role and key dependency uh, in a really complicated global supply chain for um, the production of advanced semiconductors, which are kind of integral to everything now, right? If you take Internet of Things, devices, everything's going to have a chip in it. Um, now, not everything needs the most advanced chips, of which uh, pretty much TSMC, which is a Taiwanese company, has a monopoly, like 90% of the global market. Um, but there's a large number of other uh, you know, chips that are used in everything from cars to dishwashers, um, 
and every device now that's basically coming off the the lines uh you know and consumer products uh it's it's dominated by by a handful of countries really um and the production process over many years was was hyper specialized so you know that specialized in sort of these lithography machines um you know south korea specialized some of two set in those machines as well but other parts of, of the manufacturing um system china has really built themselves into this uh part of that where they do a lot of um a lot of the production and sort of um and packaging and so these you know in a globalized system you can have specialization right like one country doubles down on this piece and then and then there's a lot of trade and and the re- end result is you know is great iphones right um that is a system that's now being challenged um and like that's come in different ways but most specifically in the past i don't know was it two three months ago the Department of Commerce, which uh, has authority to regulate um, export controls, there's a certain Bureau of, in, I think, Industrial Security that uh, does export controls. And principally, that was that was for, like, uh, like like arms control originally, right? In, <laughs> like post-war era, like we didn't want the Russians to get advanced technology for their missiles, et cetera. And there was a whole mechanism, like coordinating committees among our allies to sort of coordinate, like you know, what we would and wouldn't sell to the Russians so that, you know, that they, they couldn't just easily evade those things. It was always a cat and mouse game, et cetera. But they were pretty effective during the Cold War as coordinating committees to do this sort of, um, uh, you know, export restrictions. And you're sort of seeing, like, those kind of come back to a certain extent, at least in very incipient stage now with China. And there was a particular uh, rule that was passed that basically, you know, forbid any, any, any company that sold basically... Uh, you know, chips that had like uh, U.S. inputs, right, is is the in the supply chain, um, especially design materials or any U.S. persons involved from selling certain categories of, of technology to China. It's very technical and several hundred pages of rules, et cetera. But the upshot is we're trying to basically, um, you know, restrict how much access China has. Uh, the game right now is to try to get our allies on to make this not just a unilateral export uh, control, but a multilateral thing. In particular, get like the Japanese, and the um and the Dutch and maybe the South Koreans, other they're a little wishy washy, to uh to really like come on board and to really try to strangle China's abilities to get uh to really uh, you know kind of leapfrog uh, in these technologies. So that's it's a question of how successful will be whether China will be able to do an end run around them. You know, China has you know invested massive state um you know funds into try to uh, create a domestic semiconductor industry. Um, to make success. There's been a lot of corruption in that, as you can imagine, where you just like throw billions of dollars at the door. And recently, a bunch of the people that were running that kind of state investment fund for semiconductor, um, uh, like industrial policy, were like arrested for corruption, um, uh, which is not an uncommon thing in China. Uh, uh, I, I know I'm sort of in the middle ground. Like, I'm not super pessimistic uh, about China. Um, but like, where there's a will, there's a way. And, you know, this technology is it's already been invented right so it's not like impossible it's just very hard um so and it's a question it's a matter of time um and it's also a matter of like if trying to can't get to say sub seven nanometer chips if they can't reproduce exactly like the like the dutch um like euv equipment which they they're you know they may or may not be close to i don't think they are um is that a strategic game changer right i, I don't i'm not sure it really is um like it's it's a lot of focus on it because it's been the most like clear example of this like more explicit confrontational approach between U.S. and China. But it doesn't like in my mind like change the the real probability of like a Taiwan scenario, right? This thing it, it, it's right. a new wrinkle. Um, but I think it, it augurs a trend, which is you're going to see more restrictions 
and more like gates being put up between these two systems. Yeah. And there's a there's like intense negotiations, obviously you can imagine, between say Wall Street, technology firms and the White House. A lot of different incentives there. What's what's gonna be restricted or not, right? So these things are strategic, like AI and quantum computing, but like biotech or, you know, uh, you know, other sorts of software are not restricted. And of course, there's a lot of money to be made or lost depending on which sorts of products are blocked from the Chinese market. Absolutely. And this is where you can see this tension between the national security prerogatives, uh, you know, and the economic prerogatives of our system. We could talk about China for like another three hours, and I want to. We're going to use some self-control. We're going to pivot. Let's talk briefly about Russia and the impact of Russian sanctions. And then we'll use that to kind of pivot into maybe dollar vulnerability, U.S. Treasury vulnerability, and Bitcoin. We'll try to kind of work through those three. Maybe we'll start with the significance of what happened in Russia. You've been on record as saying you think it could be a fundamental pivot in the evolution of the international economic system. Why do you view it as that significant for someone that's been living under a rock for the last year? Yes. Uh, and this is a good segue from the China conversation to kind of zoom out and look at what, what, what do we mean by the global order or the, or the international system itself, right? And the way I see this as um, a geopolitical and economic arrangement that has matured over the past several decades and is sort of in current incarnation in like a simple schema is like three like points of a triangle. Again, everything is in reality more complicated, but just to like try to simplify things, like the most important kind of uh, point of the triangle is like the G7 military, monetary, like legal matrix of kind of global institutions that we sort of have, have been built and managed by the West since World War II. And that is everything you could think of from both SWIFT as well as like international legal tribunals, arbitration uh, panels, um, as well as like hard, you know, like infrastructure that we've built, right? And, you know, NSA uh, capabilities to monitor global internet traffic and our military capabilities to do, you know, to basically create a global trade environment. So that's clearly the most powerful point of the of the system, but it's basically money and credit and telecommunications and military power kind of like in this like um, institutional arrangement, like the G7 as like the like the top of the global hierarchy. The two other pieces of that point, one essentially is, is like commodities, right? It's like raw materials, right? If you want to have an economic system, you need money, stuff, and then converting that stuff into products, right? So you need, you know, like labor and labor and capital and production. Um, and that's kind of how we've sort of done this division of labor is the, the G7 is money and credit, and they use the military to kind of keep that system in place and the institutional legal framework. Then it's like OPEC plus. So essentially, you know, Saudi Arabia and Russia and, you know, a few other kind of GCC countries and some African countries that are the dominant producer of energy, right? And raw commodities that are what the world needs, right? And then China has sort of emerged as like the locus of global production, right? How you convert the raw stuff into goods and services that really mostly the West, the G7 mm -hmm. consumes. And so the global system kind of worked well when all three of those points were kind of in frenemy mode, when they kind of agreed to play their particular role and didn't weaponize their particular, you know, element of power against the other pieces. Uh, and I think that's what you're seeing unfold is like breakdown in the relationship between like, like a triangle, like, like each of those um, pieces of the triangle are, are coming under different stress. So like the Russia sanction is, it was a, a major whack to the link between G7 and Russian commodities. Right. And those that has unfolded over time. Right. We've sanctioned their fiat reserves. 
that we try to put a cap on the price of their oil. And then we're obviously funding with hard military power, uh, you know, the Iranian, uh, the, 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 the Ukrainian military effort. It's so, like, see that particular conflict, you know, as a as a particular flashpoint in this unfolding global dynamic that is coming under stress. But you also look at the other ends of that, of that of what we were just talking about, like export controls. Like that's the link between G7 and China as a production, right? And this trade system. And we're trying to put more, it's not as, it's not as severe uh, uh, as a whack as the fiat uh, sanctions on, on, on Russia and the associated military, uh, uh, you know, engagements, um, sort of proxy war to a certain extent. Uh, but it is still like a sign of like increasing stress between the G7 and that China leg. And then you actually look at the other leg, OPEC in China. That's also where this sort of future dollarization and the Zoltan Posnar thing comes in, because it's like looking for okay, if these if these parts of the of the of the triangle between G7, OPEC, and China are coming under stress, well, does this thing get stronger? And that seems to be where the trend line is. Is that you know this is where things like Saudi uh, you know making noises about pricing oil sales in yuan, other stories about development of, for example, like CBDCs called like the M Bridge to link, uh, you know, the PBOC to GCC central banks and, and other central banks, uh, uh, you know, in, in the area. And essentially stronger bilateral relationship between OPEC and China. So this is where I situate the China conflict in this larger sort of strategic context and where each of those pieces is, you know, doesn't have like, doesn't have like, um, this is like what you might call like a, an example of multipolarity, right? Like, like clearly the G7 doesn't have the, uh, doesn't have like the hegemonic authority just to like, like stop all that, right? But it's a contest, and we're still sort of in the early stages, I think. Yeah. So the the interesting thing about this contest is that it seems that while this ball is in the air is the point at which none of these entities kind of trust each other. So there's there's this kind of neutral ground that we're all trying to reach. No one wants to, like these countries on the other, opposite side of the dollar don't want to trust the dollar. Obviously, the Western countries oh. aren't going to trust the yuan, digital yuan. So we have this interplay between trustlessness, which is, I mean, and as we've all, you know, Dan and I have been started this Bitcoin basics thing and trust is the fundamental constituency that money is made of uh -huh. effectively. And so we have this other uh -huh. thing called Bitcoin, which has been, you know, interesting us for the last five years. And it sounds like you as well, whereas this is a effectively a trustless money that is controlled by no one as a neutral ground in this vacuum space of trust that has been created. How do you see that uh -huh. interplay in this entire geopolitical strata? Yeah, that is that is a really interesting question because even if you, if Bitcoin didn't exist, right, and you were just trying to you know look at the next five or ten years and try to mark out like how could this very complex and increasingly strained global system evolve, it'd be very difficult, right? And you'd have to answer questions like, can China make a break for it? Can is the U.S. is going to give up its role as a global sort of security provider? Um, what's the implication of that to the monetary system. And that's where I sort of step back and think about Bitcoin is the global monetary system, the certain arrangement of what is used as a global medium of exchange and what is used as a global store of value as like a reserve asset and a reserve currency is usually a function of the global balance of power arrangement, like geopolitics. So whoever has the most power, like especially in the hegemonic system, sets the rules and part of those rules is what counts as money. And they can essentially enforce that rule and control access to kind of that, that, that money system uh, and to restrict access or punish people uh, you know, that they don't like. And that's essentially the function of sanctions, it's essentially two, two key powers. One is like a panopticon power to sort of see all the transactions in the world. That's essentially a function of, of FinCEN and KYC AML is to be able to monitor global transactions and then choke point authority to be able to block, 
you know, uh, undesirable transactions and to punish bad actors and be able to restrict them from accessing this this global fiat system. But the fiat system is a function of the political uh, of the geopolitical arrangement. And so, if you want to make a forecast of any major change to the monetary arrangement, you kind of have to have some assumptions or analysis of how you think the geopolitical arrangement might might unfold. Like, yeah. Uh, and there are like two two key dimensions to that question. Like, one is go back to like early part of the conversation, like like money as institution. Um, and it goes through the sort of cycles, right? And money in particular is subject to these cycles, especially in a debt-based system where, you know, eventually you get too many debts. So this is like the Ray Dalio long-term debt cycle idea. And that puts a lot of strain on like the physical capacity of the state to uh, ensure its commitments, both military commitments, social obligations, et cetera. And it's a particular concern now because of the position of the U.S. Treasury security as the global reserve asset, which I sort of separate from the role of the dollar as a global reserve currency. Because it's the medium of exchange, it's how you denominate, you know, accounts. Um, and it's like convenient for everyone to use dollars to denominate, you know, their trade and their, you know, in like interest rate swaps and, you know, everything else. But does it mean they're like holding it as like a long-term store of value? Like that is usually the function of, of treasury security. And in the global dollar, this is the whole separate conversation about euro dollar system. But in the global euro dollar system, we don't have direct access to the Fed, right, as like lender of last resort for themselves. They hold and they trade treasuries as like essential collateral for all funding transactions in the global uh, sort of financial system, which dwarfs trade um, uh, by several, by several, I don't know, hundred percentage points. Um, and so this is all putting a lot of weight on sort of the current stability of the global financial system and therefore the global economic power of the United States and therefore the global power of the United States on this treasury security. And so any stress that the treasury security is facing, I think, is uh, needs to be taken like with a special attention. And the function of a global reserve asset is yeah that it is a fungible asset for anyone to use, and if you um, you start chipping away at that, mm. right? The, the function of the treasury reserve asset is two things: one, it's safe and liquid, right? So the safety of it of it is really that it doesn't lose value dramatically, right? And that it also is something that you can sell and use freely. Um, and I think we've seen in the past year or two years uh, that that safetyness has come under question. Even um, you know, like, like it fell like. Work, it lost more of its value in 2022 than I think it had lost since like, I don't know, eight, like 80 years. Um, uh, and obviously, if you're Russia or if you're someone who may be on the bad side of a future U.S. political administration, like you have to price that risk premium in now, right? Maybe it was a low risk to you, but now I think other other actors in the global system that freely use treasuries, you know, have to add a new risk premium to, 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 to their portfolio calculations. Um and then liquidity, right? Liquidity is a key aspect of why you hold this thing. And even Treasury Secretary Yellen came out. This is probably the reason for the sort of pivot in the dollar strength was like, you know, severe Ill, like illiquidity in the off the run Treasury security market. So these are all like you get really deep in the technical plumbing of the Treasury security market. And this is why part of like then you zoom out to the like why Russia's, you know, the sanctions matter. Because if you're a sovereign wealth manager in the Middle East, you know, if you're even a reserve manager in Turkey or in India, you know, these other powers that have... Um, you know, increasing confidence and increasing, um, you know, uh, room for maneuver, uh, you know, uh, they may worry that their room for maneuver may be subject to uh, coercion by the United States. Maybe not now, but maybe in the future political administration. Like, you know, U.S. politics is kind of messy. <laughs> and and we seem to, you know, uh, be more volatile than we have been in the past. And so all these things essentially add risk premium and mean that you don't necessarily, you know, imagine like, yeah, like a total collapse of the dollar, but you means that you know, aggregate hedging behavior over time can have strategic consequences. And when we're facing an environment where we have to um, find more 
you know, buyers of our treasury debt, right? Like we have major outlays that we like are almost committed to for strategic reasons, right? Like defense obligations, industrial policy, social obligations, interest payments, um, but like, you know, like Green New Deal, these things are really expensive and require a lot more treasury debt issuance. And if the net foreign buyer is, you know, not going to be there in the next five or 10 years, like that's going to require essentially like domestic cram down, going to require financial repression or other, other ways of like coercing people into buying treasuries. And yeah, that is, that is not a good place to be in if you're, you know, we're putting so much stress on the treasury market. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where Bitcoin, I think has an interesting parlay in is because we're not talking about replacing the dollar as the global medium of exchange or unit of account, at least I think not in any sort of reasonable time yeah. scale to, to, to sort of try to analyze, but it is an open question about where do, uh, where's the marginal flow go for sort of, um, uh, for, for, for a reserve asset, right? And Bitcoin right now is still small, still very volatile. It's not all that liquid compared to, you know, like a G7 fiat bond or gold um, or farmland. Um, but I think it is now in the conversation, like it wasn't even in the conversation. Uh, and there's actually a great paper by um, a graduate of the Harvard uh, uh, sort of um, uh, uh, economics uh, PhD program. He's actually recently made a fellow of Bitcoin Policy Institute, same with Matthew Ferranti. And he did this and he's a, you know, an, like an econometrician and, you know, does this sort of modeling. And he basically tried to model this very specific question, which is, you know, if you are at, are at sanctions risk, um, you know, what what changes do you make to your sort of optimal portfolio allocation as a sovereign reserve manager? And, you, you know, it's a pretty complicated sort of mathematical model. But the bottom line upshot was like, it's it's plausible and prudent if you're facing this sort of set of risks to allocate, say, anywhere from two to 10 percent of your sovereign wealth um, reserves to Bitcoin. Um, which is, and it's just like, yeah, they're not going to go all in, but like, that is, that's like what the math tells yeah. And so that is, that is a, that is an interesting scenario to, to play out over the course of this decade, right? Where Bitcoin isn't going to like flip, you know, the dollar or anything like that, but like, it is still a, a potential strategically, um, consequential development. If, if a bunch of sovereign wealth managers are really in particular, you know, more on the, on the covert side, cause you probably don't want to become too overt on this, start acquiring Bitcoin, um, as a diversification hedge, right? Because uh, it offers different things that Bitcoin that, that than gold does, right? It's not a complete substitute for gold. Um, it actually maybe has properties more desirable than gold because you don't actually have to, you know, self custody like with the expensive vaults and verification process. Like if you want to self custody, you know, billions of dollars worth of gold, quite expensive. And there's a lot of transaction costs to do that and settle trade with like seven thirty sevens full of gold or shipments of gold. Like that's yeah, going back to like the nineteenth century. Um, so like there's transaction costs or security costs, verification costs uh, that Bitcoin doesn't have. Now, Bitcoin has a lot of has much higher volatility. So that would, you know, that would penalize it in terms of your portfolio allocation. But I mean, long, long story short, is it's not crazy to, to think that a few percentage points of sovereign uh, wealth goes into Bitcoin this decade. And that's not a scenario that I think is being taken very seriously um, from like a geopolitical perspective. Right? Yeah. Then we uh, got to talk to this. We got to talk to Matthew Ferranti before McCormick does. He keeps scooping us. We get somebody. Yeah. They're on him like a week before. We're like, God damn it, Peter McCormick. Yeah, you're right. Uh, man, there's so much you just said that that's so profound. And I, I think you do, you, as usual, you do a great job of striking a middle ground. There's sort of the two extremes I see. One is that the U.S. dollar, U.S. Treasury system isn't going to evaporate overnight. Like that, that that's another example of, of sort of sovereign individual thesis isn't going to come to complete fruition in 2026. Like th this is a, a very, very long play out in the digital age. And you, you make a very good point that these massive, you know, geopolitical players are daddy. 
and whoever's in control is going to have significant control of the monetary system. And unless you want to be holed up in the mountains alone for the rest of your life without a family, it's going to impact you. The other side is that for me, my, my journey in Bitcoin is a giant game of elimination. What else works is the question that I kind of keep asking. And if you are an FX reserve manager looking at the landscape into the late 2020s, 2030s and beyond, you have two glaring issues that you need to even marginally hedge out of with the, the current U.S. hegemonic power. And, and you, you hit them both. One is exorbitant debt levels that are only going to get worse, that are very likely going to lead to financial repression. And the other is growing conditionality of the collateral and reserves that you hold, right? Because back if, if daddy says you can't have your allowance, you're not going to go to the candy store. So even, even if these are, and this is what you do for a living, even if these are obscure, unlikely scenarios, they're certainly possible. And as, and as tensions mm -hmm. escalate, as things fray, as the world deglobalizes, it seems very likely that these managers are going to diversify, which then starts asking the question, mm -hmm. what are they going to diversify into? And when we ask that question of what's going to be settleable, fungible liquid in a less trust-filled global environment that is heavily digital, there's only one thing that, that you know, you can throw out a list of shit and keep crossing the stuff off. And the word that's left at the end is Bitcoin, at least partially, even mm -hmm. in small amounts. Last point I'll make here, these tiny amounts, oh, two to, you know, one, two, you know, you said 10% a second ago. You start doing the math on the inflows and what that's going to mean for the valuation of a Bitcoin. And it's really, really significant when you're staring at a $400 billion asset currently. Yeah. And not to mention the fact that yeah. there's probably really only 17 million Bitcoins that are available. I mean, on exchanges, it's like 2 million, but I mean, 17 million that aren't lost. There's a massive amount of the stuff that has been lost by people that had no idea what they held 10 years ago or whatever. Um, and I'm sure yeah. people will lose more in the future, but this is an asset that has got a massive supply crunch. Yeah. The other thing I'll say is, and I hadn't really thought too much about this explicitly, but your thoughts about it, like, it's actually a cheap so people think, oh, well, it would be bad for the United States if a bunch of, you know, Middle Eastern, you know, Eurasian powers started acquiring Bitcoin. We would see it as a threat to the U.S. system. And we would like, you know, natural inclination is to like double down on, you know, Panopticon, choke point, reinforce the hegemonic status of the U.S. Treasury security and the global system. And obviously that's like plan A. Plan A is you don't just like, you know, just call it a day and like flip it over, right? Um, but I think there's like a scenario where it's actually just like a, this is a, like, it's more costly if the global system flips to like a gold standard to the United States, because that's what China and Russia and India and Turkey, that's what they've been sort of hedging for, right? They've been hedging them for like, a, you know, like a breakdown of the global system and, you know, gold has to be kind of re-anchored to a certain extent. Um, it's like the Luke Roman sort of thesis, right? Um, and that would be like a marginal rebalancing that, you know, would be really destructive and probably would like lead to a net, you know, diminution of U.S. power and a net increase in sort of Eurasian autocratic power, which, you know, would not be great for us, right? So that we want to avoid that type of scenario if we can. But if like, uh, if so that's in Bitcoin monetizing, you know, instead of gold relative to treasuries, right? If Bitcoin is competing for this reserve asset um, portfolio, doesn't mean it's just going to eat out of the treasury pot. It can also eat out of the gold pot. And so you want it to eat more out of the gold pot than eat out of the treasury security pot, right? Is the basic idea. You want like the relative like reallocation to come more from gold to Bitcoin than from treasury securities to Bitcoin. Because that is like, that's essentially like to schematize, like if gold wins China, Russia, Turkey, India win, 
if treasury securities win, it's more like the status quo wins, right? But I think Bitcoin, like I think in general, Bitcoin is more likely to demonetize gold than treasuries because it's just, it's a different asset, right? Um, and they're more substitutes for each other. So if you actually encourage the monetization of Bitcoin relative to gold, like that actually can like benefit you, right? In this sort of, in this, in this competition, right? And we're already in a good position, right? So, and it's actually like a cheap hedge. So if we just hold, Americans hold a lot of Bitcoin, like the marginal, uh, you know, capital injection by an Emirati, you know, sovereign wealth manager, like is like de, is like de facto seniorage to United States right. citizens, right? <laughs> I mean, like that's just like increases the values of our bags, right? And, you know, as long as we don't have like a massive tax revolt, right? That increases, you know, and like on the margin, you know, the tax revenue from capital gains to the United States, which increases the, you know, the fiscal credit worthiness of the United States. Now, that's assuming a lot of other things, right? That <laughs> we... We don't blow our budgets, uh, you know, indefinitely. Uh, we don't lose a major war to China or other things like that. But like, generally speaking, the monetization of Bitcoin, like if it's arranged properly, like could be the net advantage to the United States uh, relative to our our, our, our our autocratic adversaries, as long as we don't take this sort of narrow zero-sum competition between, you know, Bitcoin. This is where, last point, sometimes Bitcoin is thinking like Bitcoins versus CBDCs. Like those are different, there's like a category error to a certain extent, at least for now, right? Like it's really, this between like, you know, uh, it's like, that, that, that's like the transaction sort of censorship system, right? Is like, do you have like free stable coins, right? That are that that are free to transact in, or do you have like a Panopticon sort of CBDC, right? And you can still transact on on Bitcoin, but the main function of Bitcoin in this sort of geopolitical dynamic is as a reserve asset. Um, but it also comes along with its own settlement rails. Uh, and this, just to go to complete the the picture there, this is what China is really trying to anchor on in the near term, is really to try to flip the global capital flows. Like, there's a lot of structural reasons why that'd be really hard to do. But it's to build sanctions-resistant settlement systems with their key trade partners, of which they are the dominant trade partner for the majority of the world. And so they want to settle their trade outside of the SWIFT system. And so they're trying to set up essentially cross-border clearing systems, and they have their own digital currency sort of ride on the rails of that. And they have their own techno-government totalitarian stack that tries to come alongside that too. And so this is part of kind of the geoeconomic competition between U.S. and China. Um, it's not purely in this monetary regime of sovereign assets, but it's in the settlement yes. systems. and. Yeah, so it's SWIFT, SIPS, which is the Chinese version, and then Bitcoin, which is its own settlement system. And I think this is, you know, like there's a new dynamic in the, it's not just like this binary. It's now like there's a, there's a new player in the game and it's kind of complicated. And Bitcoin doesn't necessarily, you know, just take policy instruction from, you know, the Security Council, right? And so that's kind of breaks the, menta the mental mode of how we think about policymaking. Um, but I think it's, it's, we have to be more flexible. Um, yeah, you use the word sanction resistant settlement systems. That's a, a, a really good phrase. And and I think you did this when you were on with McCormick, but you, you sort of talked about the Bitcoin rails blending, say, the store value benefit of gold with the mm -hmm. swift uh, rail capability to settle that okay. currently exists under the treasury system and the dollar system. And yeah, you need to have you need to have both. You need to have the censorship resistant bearer neutral settlement characteristics, but you need the functionality and technology to be able to actually settle transactions. And there, there's back to the thing, there's not very many things that meet this criteria. There, there's one that's blaring and glaring bright orange. 100%. We would be remiss if we didn't at least get a 10 to 15 minute segment here in on aliens with someone of your yeah. uh, caliber. Give the people what they want. So, yeah, dude. You know what I really want to know? Um, have you listened to Joe Rogan's interview with Bob Lazar? Yeah, you did. How much credibility do you think Bob Lazar has in general? So it's an interesting place to start right here. Cause yeah, we should probably at least yeah. enumerate a bit about Bob Lazar's story, like a, just a minute or so. Yeah. 
So is it, so uh, quickly, so I, I don't know, I don't know in special insight into Bob Lazar other than what everything, you know, people speculate on him. And he has a pretty fantastic story about working at Area 51, seeing craft, maybe even seeing bodies, telling stories about Element 115 and some advanced um, propulsion system. And, you know, Roswell was real, was real, this whole, the, the whole, the whole story right. there, um, which, you And know. what's interesting about him too, is that he, he cited a couple of things that uh, came, he said in the eighties, which were like, they had uh, a biometric sensor that he had to put his hand on and it would measure his, it hit. uh, his bones and his hand in order to give him clearance. And then later it was revealed that that was actually a thing. Like they actually used that in certain things in certain, uh, institutions in the eighties. So either, I mean, he at least had access to a place where he had knowledge of like some of the biometric systems they used back then. Uh-huh. So go, go on. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I think he's most likely a fabulist, but I also think that some aspects of what he's getting at are probably true, right? So like, I think you can reject him personally uh, and also hold a decent credence in kind of the broad thrust of what he was saying. Um, and that's getting into a lot of nuance about his personal biography and maybe that's still saying a lot because what he said, I mean, even just the, even if you just skim the surface of what Bob Lazar has to say, it's pretty insane. Yeah. And I think, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't focus, if you're just getting into the UAP stuff, I would not start with Bob Lazar. I think there's <laughs> lots go deep, of other man. cases that are much higher, like much higher fidelity yeah. and also like a lot more serious. Um, and like the place to start is like just what's been happening overtly, right? In terms of uh, US government action in the past two years. And to do the segue for Bitcoin, I have like a brief sociological observation. In the past five years, I think both Bitcoin and like UAPs as a topic have like evolved in like the sort of, um, like Overton yeah. window and like along a similar trajectory. Uh, and it's like, a, you know, I think that actually has to do with some dynamics associated with social media and how like these types of more um, kind of uh, somewhat fringe, you know, ideas or kind of social organizations can sort of nucleate and create kind of like a reinforcing dynamic that like can generate like, you know, like through like minority rule uh, influence and to like propagate through the wider social network and start to have like salience in the, in the broader sort of normie discourse where Bitcoin is now becoming less of like a fringe topic and now like a normie topic of policy conversation. And there's like an ironic synchronicity between like the actual policy um, uh, dynamics where like there's a single senator, Senator Gillibrand, who's also been like one of the key co-sponsors of like crypto legislation with Senator Lummis. And she's also the key co-sponsor of like the defining UAP legislation amendments to the 2022 and 2023 National Defense Authorization Act co-sponsored with Marco Rubio. So it's, I don't, I don't think there's any like deep state, like weird conspiracy here. I think that it does show that these two things are, are, are indicators of a broader trend, I think, in how um, these topics can kind of become more to the, to, to the center of, of discourse. But like UAPs were not memed into existence. Like the U.S. government has been focused on these topics for decades. And in fact, the recent National Defense Authorization Act, the like signature bill that like, you know, funds our military, <laughs> uh, has like 40 pages of provisions just on UAPs, which is the re- they're like the rebranding for UFOs. Um, and one of those provisions is mandating a report by a new office created inside the Pentagon that reports directly now to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks, um, called the um, uh, All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, right? Very kind of- um, <laughs> Very government. Really yeah. mouthed. Yeah. Uh, and one of their tasks is to do a comprehensive review of all U.S. government's engagements and reports and studies and programs related to UAPs says January 1st, 1945. So they wrote this in the statute. They've said you have to go back and like study. And in part of the, like, this is the authorizing statute language, that part of the study is, is any attempts by the U.S. government to manipulate public opinion uh, uh, on the subject. 
So this is like Congress is now waking up to this very seriously. The House, uh, House Select um, Committee on Intelligence, how the the HIPSI, House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and uh, the SSCI, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, very focused on this. They've gotten a lot of briefings over the number of years. They've seen things that, you know, the average public hasn't seen. And they're very, very clued in to this stuff. So like the U.S. government like has always taken this very seriously, but it's kind of been included from view. And I think the last five years since the 2017 New York Times article, since Lou Elizondo came out and went public and Christopher Mellon, who's a former Defense Department official as well, came out and started speaking very like overtly about the U.S. government's view of UAPs and the mystery of this phenomenon. So it is a very serious topic being taken very seriously. Um, there are, you know, lots of things happening inside the intelligence community, uh, Defense Department now more overtly. And there's a fight because there's a certain subset of population said those communities that don't want to touch this. And there's others that are like, this is a serious issue. Um, I mean, the bottom line is like, these are real things. Um, uh, and yeah, like it's a slow process of how to come, come clean, <laughs> how to, how to, uh, how to make this, uh, an acceptable, you know, uh, thing, uh, cause we don't really know yeah. much about it. Right. It's, it's one thing to say that, yeah, objects flying around is another thing. Well, to, one of the more interesting yeah. ones, which is, um, more credible than Bob Lazar was there's a couple of different F-18, uh, naval pilots that were, they, I, they have a, a training area right out in the Atlantic out of new, uh, Newport okay. beach, probably somewhere in that area. And they were all, they had new radars installed on their jets. So they were seeing further more fidelity than they would have otherwise. And they're seeing these same radar pings in the same very similar spot every day. And uh, I think one of those pilots was on Joe Rogan as well. And uh, one of them, David Fravor. What was his name? Yeah. He was the lead. David Fravor is like Top Gun super senior, one of the best pilots in the The crazy thing is they described it as basically being a sphere with a cube inside of it. They were able to get close enough to actually identify those features of it. And more multiple pilots had seen that same thing. Just a very, very strange. I mean, there's. I mean, you could speculate that maybe this is some foreign state with some technology that you know, or maybe the U.S. government experimenting with something. But why would they put it in that space with those F-18 pilots? Obviously, they wouldn't want them to probably see it if they're trying to keep it secret. Just a kind and of mo- moving mm-hmm. in the manner that these right. things do when they're reported. Completely outside of the realm of yeah, like, they're, typical they're, physics and how we understand things. Though to move yeah i think there is there's been on a lot of these incidents some of them have been you know communicated publicly by the by the witnesses so ryan graves was a one of the one of the pilots doing the workups and he's talked about sort of i think the spear in the cube that he and some of his pilots saw david fravor was in a sort of a tandem workup um and they saw this tic-tac object and he sort of tried to do this intercept and then it like like shot off uh in like 60 miles in five seconds and went to his cat point um and uh, demonstrated, you know, on, on the Spy One radar from the USS Princeton, coming from eighty thousand feet to eighty feet, and then you know doing doing a lot of um, sort of hypersonic Holy maneuvers, shit. transmedium. So like the sort of the like the five observables yeah. essentially um, that have been characterized by the U.S. government associated with these UAPs, like how they define them as like objects, is uh, sort of uh, like hypersonic velocity, uh, transmedium capability. So coming from atmosphere to space to, to underwater. And you going know, the same speed underwater, uh, too. They've actually tracked some of these things underwater going faster than the speed of sound, which, I mean, in water is faster stuff, than in air. The underwater stuff is is very squirrely. The, our, our underwater sensor detections uh, systems are probably the most classified things we have. Um, going back to Cold War tracking nuclear subs. Um, and so our capabilities there are extremely um, uh, perishable and very, very secret. So we don't, we'll, we'll never make those detections. But but it has been sort of leaked that we've seen these things called fast movers underwater that are certainly, certainly not Russian uh, 
Russian torpedoes doing some sort of supercavitation, which we know the Russians have supercavitating torpedoes where you can kind of create a little bubble underwater and go, you know, several hundred knots. Um, these are not those things, uh, especially when you correlate an underwater detection with a radar detection with a low Earth orbit satellite detection of like a similar trajectory. That that it's raises wild. that raises some eyebrows. Um, so that is part of the mission of, of Aero is to do this sort of sensor correlation, which really wasn't being done systematically. Uh, is to bring together um, all these different sensor systems, which are designed for their specific areas, right? Like you have uh, like Leo and Geo satellites, mainly for like missile detection, right? <laughs> like sort of, and they do tipping and queuing. So you have a Geo satellite that's like twenty five thousand miles up in uh, in orbit. That's just like looking for you know like right. heat plumes, and then queues in a Leo satellite to like zoom in and actually characterize the the vehicle, right? What you know if it's a if the you know a Chinese if it's a Chinese hypersonic system. But they also use AI machine learning systems, and this is a company called um, called Radiance Technologies that's based out of um, Wright Patterson Air Force Base, which is in in UFO lore where like where the craft was taken. Uh, but it's also you know in actual uh, reality, it's um, not to discount potential Roswell uh, reality, but like uh, is the head of the it's where the the foreign technology division is where where we like capture or reverse engineer foreign technology. Um, and so the Radiance Technologies is a defense contractor, you know, affiliated with that, and they recently hired two folks from the U.S. government that uh, were recently one, like the head of the UAP task force and two, the chief science officer. And Renaissance Technology specializes in doing um, uh, basically AI machine learning for our, our, our space surveillance architecture. So how to look for objects using our satellite capabilities and characterize them using machine learning. And the basic you know gripe has been, we've characterized only the objects we were trying to characterize. So everything else was noise and tossed out. Like if it didn't, if it wasn't like obviously like an ICBM or a hypersonic missile, it was meteorite, just throw it in the bin. No analyst even looks at it, right? Um, that's how these systems work. They just generate huge amounts of data. And until someone like asks to build a new classifier for a certain signature, you're not going to look at it. And that's basically what they're yeah. doing now. Um, and uh, so, yeah, these are all indications of like, seri- like the, when, the, when the machine kicks into gear, defense contractors get spun up. Um, so these are like, as far as I know, like real detections. Now, what they are, you know, this is like a longer conversation, but like I've got like four categories of, 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 of explanation exhaust the space one is like systematic um error one is systematic deception one is human technology one is non-human technology so there's like the four options yep. right there's a classist explanation and so as like a principle of bayesian reasoning you first say okay what's like the prior probability for each of those four and then you do empirical investigation you collect data you construct models and you try to understand like how do you revise the probability distribution of your credences across across those four categories and so you have to, you know, come and tell the best possible story for what could explain if this was all sensor error, like all of our radars and, uh, you know, various imaging systems and, you know, everything. And for, you know, eyeballs of pilots are just being wrong. They're just, they're just mistaken. It's, it's weather balloons. It's, it's celestial phenomenon. It's, you know, whatever. That's one cloudy of explanations. The second is systematic deception. Like someone is trying to make us believe that these things are real when they're not. So there's some group with capability and intent to systematically manipulate all of our beliefs to make them to make us believe that these things are real, that these detections are real. Uh, David Fravor yeah. and Ryan Graves, those guys, they're they're paid actors. Right. This is all and you'd like have to also psyop. believe that these right? radar systems are hackable remotely somehow in that in in tandem, or, or that there's or that all that's being made yeah. up, right? That like everyone's right, lying, right. basically, right? That it's like it's one big coordinated psyop. That there's no actual detections of anything. It's just everyone, everyone, everyone that you've ever heard talking about this is some some part of the of the of, of, of the of the Manipulated okay. deception, um, which yeah, if that was true, you have to say, well, that's that's an impressive deception they've been doing for many decades. Why are they doing that? What else are, am I being mm. deceived on? So if you believe that, you have to kind of believe a lot of yeah, other that's a, like 
You have to like you could devolve real deep into that one. I would be careful yeah. with it. The third, the third, the third is it's human technology that is you know in the possession of some entity, right? Some organization, whether it's the United States, China, Russia, Israel's France, Germany, some advanced industrial power, some breakaway human civilization element that's like made this breakthrough physics and for whatever reason is just like messing around. Right? <laughs> like they haven't done anything obvious with it, try to take power or whatever. They're just like you know, got this crazy advanced technology and they've had it for decades because apparently we've been seeing these things for decades. And, you know, but that's that's a kind of explanation. Um, and the fourth is non-human technology. And that is a bucket for lots of things. That's a bucket for like extraterrestrials, right? Like a another advanced civilization that developed this technology and then came here. You could also imagine like a civilization emerging on Earth way before humans were here that got really advanced technology. Most, most of them left and they left some probes around to like wait for what, see Fuck what happens. And, and then, you know, we sort of evolved, and they they were here the before Egyptians. us. Then there was like time travel. They're like human beings from the future, just coming with sending some probes back to check on us. There's like interdimensional explanations. This is some you know aspect of physics we don't understand, and you know there's some boundary layer that 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 other advanced civilizations or beings can sort of penetrate, and this is what that that manifests as. It's like everything goes into that non-human technology bucket. Each one of those subcategories of explanation, you know, requires a whole bunch of investigation, um, including it like look at advanced like physics, right? This is I think. Like to connect back to Bitcoin, like Eric Weinstein, who's had some run-ins with Bitcoin, like his main gripe, and he's given some presentations on UAPs, he's maybe even been sort of briefed on certain aspects of this, is like this points to, like, if you take this seriously as like the non-human explanation, it really points to new physics. Like ultimately, technology is downstream with physics, and we've kind of installed in terms of our physics knowledge since like the 50s, string theory seems to be a dead end. And like all the breakthrough technologies and technologies we use right now, modern life is premised on like physics we figured out in the 20s and 30s so like yep. general relativity quantum mechanics and that unlocked this whole new parameter space of technology mm-hmm. and we've just been kind of coasting on that with integrated circuits and better computing we haven't figured out any new physics and so like I, I the optimistic take on uaps is like this would be like a proof of concept that like there is new physics that someone figured out that we if we figured it out we could get that yeah. new technology like that would be kind of a cool thing be. um Again, that's that that gets into like wider things. But the bottom line is this is being taken very seriously by the government. There's like now like a whistleblower protection so that people can report, you know, things to Arrow and, and to Congress if they have engaged in legacy programs that they are covered by non disclosure agreements that they can't come out publicly and talk about. Um they may start that may be happening soon. <clears throat> Arrow has to do a whole bunch of investigations, develop a science plan, uh, even create like a strike team. So if there's a reports of like an incident. They need to send investigators out and collect data in a rigorous way. So this is this is this is like being taken very seriously by the U.S. government. And you know, the bureaucracies do what bureaucracies do. They set up a an office and they staff it. It takes time, and then you know, it's it's a political game at a certain point with Congress. Um, you know, we're wrapping the DoD on the knuckles if they don't feel they're getting full transparency. But that's where we are. Uh, I think it's a very interesting topic. I try to pay attention to it uh, because you know, I think it also it's like you know, it's cool it and. Cool. Kind of to talk about. We'd love to so. have you back on again and focus just on UAPs for an episode. That'd yeah, be fun. I was gonna say, Josh, let's just schedule Matt weekly for the next two years. We'll just call <laughs> this the Matt Pines Show. Um, dude, I wish we could keep going. We gotta let you go. Uh, which is just it just cuts to my core, Josh. I loved every minute of this. Thanks for uh, literally uh, doing all the heavy lifting for us today, Matt. Really, this appreciate was a blast, it. an absolute blast. Give a uh, handoff to you, your work, anything you want our audience to know. Yeah. Um, so, like, the only thing I guess I plug is I, I, wrote, I wrote a novel. So I have a I published a fiction novel called uh, Expectation Value. It's pinned to my Twitter profile. Um, it's like a science thriller mixed with espionage and some um, uh, some like speculations about AI and quantum computing and yeah, mixing some some spy stuff. So 
Uh, that's the only thing to plug. Uh, but obviously, I, my day job is at KSG. So if you happen to be a, a C-suite executive uh, in a multinational facing some degree of geopolitical or emerging technology cybersecurity risk, you know, hit me up. Um, and yeah, follow the work of the Bitcoin Policy Institute. So btcpolicy.org. Uh, you know, I published some of my long form and, and short form kind of analysis on Bitcoin. David Zell, Grant McCarthy, you know, you know, certainly support those guys, and they're doing great work um, on the sort of think uh, sort of think tank advocacy uh, for Bitcoin in DC. So, yeah, thanks for having me. We feel good in your hands. At the, we're glad guys like of your caliber and the think tanks, man. Yeah, we'll we'll have you on again if awesome. you, if you'll indulge us, Matt. Appreciate you. Yeah, anytime. We could go for hours and hours on all this stuff. So I think we just scratched, scratched the surface. Sure. Barely got this. Dude, I got five pages of notes here, and I hit like a third of them. <laughs> Not even close, and I feel like we flew by. Uh, we'll do part Enjoy two. the rest of your day. Appreciate it. Yeah, you too.